Hello, and thank you for listening to Journeying Through the Scriptures podcast, a podcast where we walk through God's Word together. I want to thank you for listening. Uh, We are now available on multiple platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Anchor, Spotify, and many more. So if you're listening on one of those or another one I didn't mention, please give it a like, uh, give it a comment. I'm always trying to improve my content, improve the structure of this podcast. Just, just let me know what you're thinking, what you're feeling, if you're enjoying it, if you're not. But thank you uh, for continuing this journey as we continue our journey through Mark together. Today we continue our journey through Mark chapter 9. And Mark chapter 9 is a chapter full of a lot of little stories. So it seems very choppy. It seems kind of like as you're reading it that they don't really connect and you're starting to wonder why it's like Mark just fit in this bunch of misfit stories into one chapter. So maybe he could just kind of throw them in there and be like, well, I'm done with those, but that's not what's happening. And I want to show you today as we read through this chapter, as we speak about this chapter, that chapter nine is actually very beautifully connected. All these stories have this theme and this this line that runs through them and we're going to we're going to look at that today explore that today and we're going to ask the question what does that mean and what is god using that for in my life chapter 9 on the surface is about jesus's glory and it's fully revealed and unfiltered in the transfiguration his power over demonic forces is seen in spite of our failures and in spite of our weak faith or in this case, the weak faith of the people in the story, but largely ours as well. In contrast, we must follow Jesus with our full lives and our total devotion. And that is sort of a synopsis, a rundown of chapter 9. And I want you to see those things at play as we jump into these different stories that are all connected. So 1 through 13 is a very famous story. It is the story of the transfiguration, which is a very big, fancy Bible word. I often think that if you are reading this with a new believer or someone who did not grow up in the church, the temptation here is to argue that the word transfiguration is a little scary. What does that mean? Well, on the surface, it literally means to be transformed or transfigured, to be changed. And we're going to see Jesus change from his earthly humility to unfiltered glory. And I want you to see that as that develops in this. So after six days after what had happened, after his teaching on his foretelling of his death and resurrection, after he's talking about uh, there's people here that won't taste death until they see the kingdom of God coming in power, he waits six days and he takes with him Peter, James, and John, and he led them up to a high mountain. That's a theme throughout the Bible. Mountains are always kind of a motif for meeting with God. And he takes them, just those three. So this is the three, the inner circle. Now, he's done this before when he goes in to heal the girl uh, who's dead. He takes with him Peter, James, and John. So these these are the guys that kind of get to see a little more than the other disciples. And Jesus takes them up the mountain with him. And it says, and he was transfigured before them. So suddenly he's changed. Well, how has he changed? His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them, and there appeared to them 
Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. We will stop there. Everything that has just happened in the transfiguration, from his clothes to who he is talking to, are screaming one thing. They are screaming, Jesus is fully divine. He is God. If you had any doubts up to this point in Mark of who Jesus is, I mean, that's the big question Mark's throwing out there. I think, you know, if nothing else has answered that for you, and it should have, right? Because we've seen Jesus with power over demons, power over death, power over storms, the power to produce food out of nothing. He takes five loaves, feeds 5,000. He does it again with 4,000, and they have leftovers. He, he walks on water. You name it, he's done it. He's healed the dead. He's healed the blind. He's healed the deaf. He's healed the leper. He's touched the untouchables. He's done things no doctor on earth could do uh, with the woman who was suffering from the bleeding. And he's cast out demons from a distance with the Seraphonician lady. And here we have his clothes so radiantly white that no one on earth could have done that? Well, because he is not of earth. He is not merely human. He is fully human, yes, but he is also fully other, fully divine. And he is. He appears with Elijah and Moses, and they appear with Jesus, and they're talking to Jesus. They know Jesus. They're submitting to Jesus because they realize Jesus is God. These are all things that are screaming his divinity. I do personally have a, a question before we continue on that, that always kind of comes up at this point in the story, and that is, how did they know that was Elijah and Moses? I mean, we don't have pictures of them. They didn't have Facebook back then. They didn't have even a painting back then that would have been something you could have trusted. It's interesting that as Elijah and Moses appear, Peter, James, and John knew who they were. They didn't have name tags, at least I don't think they did. Uh, it's just it's fascinating to me how they would have known. And it may have been in the moment it made sense. It may have been how they were talking. and They may have been quoting things they have said and written in their books. But whatever it was, Peter, James, and John recognized them. And they're talking with Jesus. The third thing that happens that would have basically been something that should have confirmed for them Jesus's divinity and confirms to us his divinity is the voice comes back and it calls out from heaven it's the father this is who this is my son listen to him and what's interesting about the voice so let's let's get to that you know, we're going to come back to what peter says um, in a minute and we're going to come back to how they're feeling but it's interesting and the cloud overshadowed them and the voice came out of the cloud this is my beloved son listen to him now, this is the second time we've heard the voice from, from the cloud. Uh, in, in when Jesus is baptized in chapter 1, the Father speaks and says, This is my beloved, you are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now, interestingly, what we have here is in Mark 1, it says, You are my Son. In Mark 9, it says, This is my Son. In Mark 1, the Father is speaking directly to the Son. In Mark 9, something interesting has happened. The voice coming out of the cloud, the Father, is speaking to the disciples. This is my Son. Mark 1, in whom I am well pleased. Mark 9, listen to him. The differences seem very subtle, but they're very important. 
In chapter 1, the Father speaks to the Son, and here on the mountain, He's speaking to the disciples, and, and across the centuries, the countries, the, the cultures, and language, He's also speaking to us with a, dis, with a, di, a distinct message. This is my Son. Listen to his words. Listen to him. And it reaches out through the Bible, throughout across time, into our time. If you want a moment to realize that the Bible is relevant today, this is one of God is speaking to the disciples, but really, as he's speaking to them, he's also speaking to us. And if I heard a voice come out of a cloud and said, this is my son, listen to him, I hope I would listen. Uh, we see Peter's response, and it's, so let's go back to chapter 5. It's a very almost comical response, and it's one that I can completely understand and gel with. I think it, we'd all be there. This is a very overwhelming, intense moment. And, and Peter says to Jesus, this kind of odd you know, moment, he goes, Rabbi, it's good that we are here, which is a weird statement. It's like, what are you talking about, Peter? Why would that be the first thing that, that comes to your mind? But it's really the fact that he just, he's utterly speechless. I don't know what else to say. And so he goes, it, it's, I get, it's good for us to be here. And he's right. It is good for them to be there. It's amazing for them to be there. And he is utterly dumbfounded on what to say. He's confused and he's scared. It says, he, he continues, he goes, let us make three tents for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. In verse 6 is a very honest writing from Mark, and he says, For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. I would probably be in the same boat. It's easy for us to kind of laugh at that, oh, the disciples, they didn't get it. They didn't know what to say. But really, in that moment, I wouldn't have known what to say either. In that moment, I would have been terrified as the unfiltered glory of, of God is shining around and there's Moses and Elijah, and, and then a voice calling out from a cloud that's now covered you. It's this overwhelming, beautiful scene where God's glory is being fully revealed, and it's too much for them to take. And we've seen that before because Moses, one of the ones there speaking with Jesus, had that same experience on a mountain where the glory of God passed by, and he had to hide. It was too much for him to take. And now that same guy is speaking with, with Jesus on a mountain with his disciples watching on, utterly dumbfounded on what to do and say. So he just says, you know, Peter, when in doubt, he's going to say something. And he does. You know, it's, so it's, Jesus kind of ignores that one. It's like, I'm just going to ignore what you said there, Peter. Uh, and the voice speaks. And I love this, uh, verse 8. And suddenly, looking around, the cloud goes away, and they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus. What a holy, silent, quiet moment. All this stuff that's been happening, all the almost the terrifying nature of everything and the overwhelming nature of everything, and then suddenly the cloud goes away, and it's just them and Jesus. I just want you to hear and to feel the weight of that moment. I mean, imagine, put yourself there, all these things going on. It would have been just too much to handle, and then suddenly it's just you and Jesus, just you and your teacher, who has been with you and walked with you, your rabbi, and your two friends, and you're alone, just just that little group, the group you came up with, and all that's happened, the weight of that's still in the air, and there's just silence, and I, and I love this, but it was only G Jesus only with them. 
and they start going down the mountain. He charges them not to tell anyone, which follows that theme we see throughout Mark, until the Son of Man has been risen from the dead. So he takes this moment to tell them, I'm going to rise from the dead, which means I'm going to have to die. And this is a great, beautiful teaching moment after this overwhelming mountainous event. And they, they begin asking him questions. It's great. I mean, they're asking good questions. Doesn't Elijah have to come first? And he takes time and he talks with them about these things. And he says, Elijah, uh, down in verse 12, does come first to restore all things. And he goes, and how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they did with him what they please, as it is written of him. He goes, he's, he's here, he's come. Before the coming of the restoring of all things, Elijah did come, and they killed him. Elijah did come, and they treated him poorly. He goes, they're going to treat me poorly. They're going to arrest me. They're going to they're gonna kill me, but I will rise again. We're going to see several times where he alludes to that here. Now, as we jump into 14, this is a connected story. They come down from the mountain, and there's a great crowd, but this time the great crowd is gathered around not Jesus, but the disciples, and they're arguing with the scribes, and immediately the crowd sees Jesus, and they're like, oh, wow, and they're amazed, and they run to Jesus, and Jesus asks the crowd, what, what are you arguing with them about? And so someone from the crowd in verse 17 says, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and it foams, and it grinds his teeth, and it becomes rigid. So ask your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. So the reason why there's this great crowd and there's an arguing in this great crowd with the scribes is the man brings his son to Jesus. Jesus is not there, but there are his disciples, his representatives, so to speak, and they can't cast out the demon. And so an argument ensues. And so now Jesus is there. And, and he goes, so I ask your disciples, and they were not able, and he answers them. And he's, I think the them there is talking about the disciples. It's not necessarily the man here, it could be, but I think this is aimed directly at the disciples. Oh, faithless generation. He's questioned the disciples' faith on more than one occasion, and I think this is another one of those occasions where he says, Oh, faithful, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring the boy to me. And I, this is just, I think, great honesty and pain and the frustration that Jesus faces with fallen humanity and it, it just in a bit of honesty he says you're faithless how long do I have to bear with you it's it's just it's frustrating it's tiring to constantly you're the guys I've been teaching and pouring into I gave you authority over the demonic to cast out demons and yet you can't do it and, and so to further that point, they bring the boy to Jesus. And the spirit saw him and immediately convulsed because he knows who Jesus is. And he rolls around and Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And the father tells him from childhood. And he continues talking a little bit about him. And then he says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help. And Jesus stops and he calls that out. If I can. He says, all things are possible for the one who believes. You see, the problem was not with was not with the ability of Jesus to cast out the demon. The problem was not with 
the disciples' ability to cast out the demon because they had been given authority of Jesus. The problem is with their faith. They don't believe. He goes, the problem isn't with divine authority and divine power. The problem is with human failure to believe in it. He said, if you can. No, unlike the leper in chapter 1 who, who approaches Jesus, says, if you would have compassion. He says, if you can have compassion. And Jesus says, oh, I can. The problem is not that. The problem is faith. And the Father picks up on this, by the way, because the Father cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And in this raw, humble moment, honest moment, you have a Father saying, I believe you have the power to heal my son. Help the unbelief that I have. He acknowledges the fact he still has unbelief in his heart. He says, I don't know what to do with it. Help me. Help my unbelief. And, and I love this for, for this reason. He, he realizes his faith is weak, but he's asking the right person. He's believing in the right person. His faith in that right person is not correct or complete, but he's in the right place with the right person and his, his belief is directed towards Jesus. And I think as, as we look at that, what does that mean for us? Our faith is not perfect. It will not be perfect on this earth. The beauty of that is, as our faith is not perfect, the object of our faith is. Jesus is the, and should be, has to be the object of our faith. And if he is the object of our faith, Anything and all things are possible because it's not the strength of our faith. It is the object of our faith. And that's the beauty. And he says all things are possible for the one who believes because the object of that faith is on Christ and on Christ who can do all things. All things are possible. And so immediately he, he cries out, I believe. Help my unbelief. And I think that is something we could pray as well. We believe, we who follow Jesus believe in Jesus, but we have moments and times where our unbelief shows up. And we, we need to be able to cry out, Jesus, I believe in you. I believe you. I believe you are the Son of God, fully human, fully God. Help my unbelief. And, and he acts. And he throws out the Spirit. And the Spirit does convulse. And this is interesting. The boy lays like he's dead, and people are saying he's dead, but Jesus took him up by the hand, lifted him, or the word there is resurrected him up, and he arose. And I think this is a very interesting allusion to Jesus' future death and resurrection. As the boy dies and Jesus raises him up, he's saying, I will die, and I will be risen up. Remember, he had been talking about that as they were coming down from the mountain. I don't think it's an accident. That word, resurrection, uh, risen up is used there. And in the Greek, it's the same word. And I think that's purposeful by Mark to connect these stories. And when he entered the house, the disciples kind of get with him privately and they go, uh, why, why could we not cast out the demon? And he talks about, you know, this demon cannot be driven out by anything but prayer, almost giving the allusion to the fact that it's very possible the disciples went into spiritual battle without praying. And, and you cannot enter the spiritual battlefield or life without devoting yourself to prayer first. Prayer must not be a last resort, but a first thing. You wake up praying to God. You go to sleep praying to God. You drive to work praying to God. Whatever it is you do, you're doing it praying because you cannot wait until you're in the midst, the midst of a spiritual battle to maybe pray. 
this is something that you always are doing anything but pray. You're always praying. That's why Paul says pray continuously. I think Jesus is saying your prayer life is weak. Your prayer game is weak. And that's why you couldn't do it. So verse 30, now we get these, and, and we're, I know we're running low on time. Bear with me as we kind of jump through these small little stories. And they went from there, from 30 and 32, just two verses. And he was teaching his disciples, and he was saying, The Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. But after three days he will rise. There's that word again. Connecting to the fact that he uh, picked the boy up, the boy rose, right? So he's like, he was dead, he rose. He's saying, I'm going to die, and in three days I will rise. But they did not understand anything he was saying. And they were afraid to ask him. So they don't understand, and they're afraid. Peter, James, and John, who saw that great thing on the mountain, still don't get it either. Okay, well, let's, as we get ready to pass over that, they, so they're missing the point. Verse 30 through 30, 33 through 36, they go to Capernaum. That's kind of his home base of operation. And when he was in the house, he asked them, they're, they're, they're discussing something, right? So on the way, they're, 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 they're talking about something, and he goes, what are you discussing? Well, they don't want to say it because what they were discussing was who will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is about to flip-flop everything on its head. He goes, you see, you're, you're asking, you're arguing over wor earthly, worldly power positions in the kingdom. And he says, this is what the kingdom will be like. The first will be last. The greatest will be a servant of all. Those who receive greatness will not get greatness, but those who receive a child will be great. And he says, the economy, the power economy in heaven is very different than the power economy on earth. It's not about power and, and self-glorification. It is about self-deprivation. It's about self-denial. It's about serving others. Because Jesus, by the way, the king of all glory, we just saw that, key, that, that glory unfiltered, served. And he will, again, continue to serve them as we go into the further chapters. But he came to serve. He became the least. The, the one who was the king became a servant. He modeled that greatly. Now, as we continue on these little stories, again, I'm going to connect them. Just hang on there. Uh, John says to him, Well, teacher, we, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for the one who does a mighty work in my name will not, or be, will not be able to soon afterwards speak evil of me. The one who is not against us is for us, and truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. And so as he gives them this great teaching about the economy of heaven in terms of the first will be last and the last will be first, be a servant of all, receive children, the one who receives children will receive the one who sent me. And John, completely missing all this stuff, points out to Jesus, hey, there's a guy casting out a demon. He's not with us. He's not on the in crowd, Jesus. What's going on with that? And it's like Jesus going, you didn't hear what I just said. This guy is casting out demons, yes, in my name. And that also connects back, by the way. And here's, all how, here's the connecting theme. To their, the disciples' inability to cast out a demon just a little bit ago in the, in the story where they couldn't cast out the demon. Here's a guy who is not with them. And he is able to cast out a demon in the name of Jesus. He's doing it right. He's doing it with the faith and the right person and the right faith. They aren't. He must be doing it in prayer. They aren't. 
they're supposed to receive all people who are who are coming in the name of God. They're supposed to receive those who are serving. They're supposed to serve. They're supposed to be humble. And his attack of this guy is somewhat pride-based. He's doing something we can't do, and he's not the one following us. He should be with us if he's doing that. We can't do that. Why is he? So you should tell him to stop, Jesus. We tried to stop him because he was doing something we couldn't do, and he wasn't with us. He wasn't on the in crowd. And Jesus says, don't stop him. He's doing it in my name, and the one who does things in my name will not be able to soon speak evil of me after. I mean, he goes, he's with us. He might not be following us, but he has faith in me. And that leads him into who, uh, this great teaching, and I know we don't have a lot of time left. I'm going to go a little late with this episode. But it's a very famous and kind of misunderstood. He, he talks about, again, the kids are still around, I think, as he says this. And he says, whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble, that would be uh, one of the ones who are young in the faith. Uh, he goes, if you cause them to stumble, to sin, it would be better for you basically to kill yourself. That, I mean, that's what he's saying. You tie a millstone around your neck and jump into the sea, and you're going to die. He goes, it's better for you to enter life crippled with... Uh, well, you, sorry, I jumped ahead there. In verse 43, he goes, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Is it, It's better for you to enter life that be eternal life crippled then uh, with two hands then to go to hell with two hands uh, sorry let me make that more clear in in verse 43 he says if your hand causes you to sin cut it off it's better for you to enter life crippled that be enter eternal life crippled than to have two hands and go to hell and he does that again with your foot he does that again with your eye tear, if your eye causes you to sin tear it out it's better you better to enter eternal life with one eye than to go to hell with two. And one thing we can glean from this is sin, by the way, is serious. Now, th- also, we have to, this is a great note on how do we read the Bible. We, we take it literally where it's literally meant to be taken literally. And that sounds like a funny little use of the word literally. And I know that's often an overused word, but Jesus is not saying literally cut your hand off if it causes you to sin. Now, how do I know that? Well, that's what the Bible says. Um, well, Jesus is speaking uh, hyperbolic here, hyperbole. He's using exaggeration here as a teaching tool. How do I know that? Because you can cut off both your hands, and that's still not the problem. We know that in chapter 8, he said it is from the heart that all sin comes from. You can pluck out both your eyes, and the problem is, if, if it's causing you to sin, it's actually your heart that's causing your eyes to sin. You could tear out both your eyes, and you're still going to have problems. And so that that is how I know that Jesus is speaking with hyperbole here. It's a teaching tool. By the way, because it's so vivid in how he describes it, you will remember sin is serious. Because it's like, I, I need to cut off my hand. No, not literally, but, but because it's that serious, because he's saying it this way, he's saying sin is serious. You need to take this seriously. It, it, it needs to cost you something to follow me. It's going to cost you to fully devote your life to me. And that means that if you have to sacrifice things. Now, in the more literal application sense of this, if, you are, if there's something in your life that is causing you to sin, yes, while it is coming from your heart, if your computer is causing you to sin for whatever, you know, you're watching it too much, you're watching things you shouldn't watch, it's taking time away from the Word of God, whatever that sin may be, if it's causing you to sin, get rid of the computer. 
Get rid of the iPhone. Get rid of that friend who is leading you down bad paths. You know, you need to cut ties with them. I think that is a very literal application of this. And one that I would recommend to people and say we need to consider that as a way. So not cutting off your hand, not plucking out your eye, but getting rid of those things in your life, whether that be people or things that are keeping you from God, because it'd be better to get rid of those things, to lose those things, to deprive yourself of things that are causing you to sin than to enter hell with those things. Because, by the way, they won't be there either. It'd be better for you to enter heaven with one eye than hell with two. Sin is serious. The results are real. And Jesus calls his followers to fully devote themselves. That's all the time we have today, and I pray that we are fully devoting ourselves to Christ, who is fully God. And we got to see that in a, in a new way, in a refreshing way, in an amazing way in this chapter. And as we cry out to Jesus and say, Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. Thank you for listening to Journeying Through the Scriptures. We continue to Mark 10 next. I hope to see you there.